every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. Welcome to Conversations with Dead People. Uh, my name is Paul Smith, and each week, uh, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, talking with me tonight is uh, Jennifer Walsh, writer, producer, and Buffy scholar, published in Watcher Junior, the undergraduate journal of Whedon Studies, which I don't think I've ever given a shout-out on this podcast. Shame on me. Uh, she's also, this is very exciting, she's also the Twitter manager for Star Talk Radio, which is super cool to me. That's almost more interesting to me than all this Buffy nonsense. But <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for joining me. How's it going? Paul, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited for this Zeposode. <laughs> oh, man, you did it. And I, yeah, I promise that is the absolute worst pun I'm going to make. Uh, I think as long as I get one in there, I'm really good to go. But yes, I'm so excited to talk about Buffy in an acceptable forum and not corner someone at a party who doesn't know that I'm about to completely geek out on them. <laughs> well, I like to imagine that this podcast is somehow being used out there in the world to corner people that, that people are carrying around weaponized copies of this podcast and just thrusting them upon people. But that's probably not actually what's going on. I don't know how podcasts work. I've only been doing this for a day. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so Jen, uh, as a first time guest on the show, I, I have to ask, um, what was your, what's your history with Buffy the Vampire Slayer? How did you get into this weird world? Excellent question. So I am, I am in a sense a Buffy wonderkind in that I found the show, I am of the Twilight generation. Hmm. So I, my first exposure to teen girls and vampires interacting was very different from the one um, property that I ended up really loving with teen girls and vampires interacting, Buffy. Uh, but I found the show when I was a junior or senior in high school, which is really the perfect time to start watching it. Uh, just get in that high school is hell bit when it's still relevant. Right. And then move into the fun stuff as you go on. Um, so that was really my first exposure to Buffy. I immediately fell in love with the show it really changed the way I thought about television writing because up until that point, I knew I had wanted to work in media production and I thought of films as high art, but I didn't really see TV that way. And I had shows I had connected with, but Buffy to me was the first show that really showed a truly dynamic range of characters and layers of metaphor and depth that weren't in a lot of shows that I as a teenager had been watching at the time. So it had really stuck out to me, and I was very lucky in college to find a wonderful professor-slash-sci-fi scholarship mentor uh, by the name of Catherine Kittredge, and she is an English professor at Ithaca College, which is also where 
Angel and Buffy star David Boreanaz graduated college. Oh. Fun little connection. And uh, Catherine Kittridge teaches an excellent course in feminist science fiction and fantasy. So I got to study Buffy academically for the first time. And as a result of taking that course, I ended up writing and researching a paper on uh, the connections between Xander Harris and Shakespearean fools. So Joss Whedon's really big into Shakespeare, and I wanted to see where those connections uh, hadn't been made yet. And so unbeknownst to me, when I started that research paper, there was actually a book being published at the same time on Whedon and Shakespeare. Um, A couple months later, I had my paper published in Watcher Jr. So it focuses mostly on comparisons between Xander and Feste, who is the fool in Twelfth Night, and how their humor and function in the plot um, is similar and different in some ways where Xander gets to do really cool things that never would have occurred in a Shakespearean play. So that's really my overview, my um, deep dive into Buffy and how I how I got on this show. <laughs> it all led you here. So it was all worth it is what you're saying. It absolutely was. I would be <laughs> a far worse person without Buffy because I found a way uh, to just express all of the things I love. It gave me so many opportunities to do research I never thought I'd want to do, think about creative endeavors in a completely different way, and also find all these kick-ass opportunities to work puns into my life. Well, can never go wrong with puns. That's probably not true, but we'll go there. We'll, we'll play that for now. You can never go wrong with puns. Yeah, I'll stick to it. Okay, all right. I'll support uh, it. Um, what was I about to ask you? Oh, oh. so the Xander thing. Um, before we head into the show, I just want to ask, does this mean that you are like a Z- Okay, so obviously you volunteered for this particular episode, which mm-hmm. we will be discussing the Zeppo, which is a possibly the high watermark, in my opinion, at least, one of the high watermarks for the character of Xander Harris across the series. So I should have assumed then that you were a Xander fan, but just confirm it for me now. Are you or are you not a Xander Harris fan? I am a Xander Harris fan. Is he my favorite character on Buffy? No. Okay. So I know a lot about Xander. I would say I am a Xander expert mm-hmm. just because he was the focus of my research. I had to do a lot of deep dive into scholarship surrounding Xander's character, but in terms of my absolute favorite characters on the show, it's really a toss-up between Buffy and Willow, though now that I say it, I can think of a million other reasons to name every character <laughs> yeah. on the show. Yeah. It's impossible. This is why I'm on a Buffy podcast. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, I, I'm always excited when I have a guest on who like, claims to be a Xander fan or a Xander expert Mm -hmm. or whatever, because Xander has on, on this particular rewatch for me and for many of my guests uh, in light of like the me too movement and basically just the changing perspective that we have on toxic masculinity and so on and so forth over the last 20, 25 years, impressions of Xander have perhaps changed. And so he's, Mm -hmm. he's taking a certain amount of heat over the course of this podcast. I'll just say that. Um, uh, from me, I mean, I'm not defending myself. Mm-hmm. I give, I give Xander more than his fair share of crap in this podcast. So 
I'm looking forward to this conversation because like I said, the Zeppo is a pretty big episode for him and, uh, and you've got sort of a, a past with the character. So this should be fun. I think. Yeah. Uh, all right. Which all of that leads me to, uh, everyone's favorite part of the show, which is the spoiler warning. Uh, conversations with dead people is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and probably lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series all the way through at least once that you press pause on this podcast now and go do just that. And assuming that all of my listeners have now pressed pause and are rushing off to watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, I guess, Jennifer, it's just you and I. So if you're ready, let's go to work. All right, let's dive in. All right, so like I said, uh, tonight we're only doing two episodes tonight. We're discussing episode 312, Helpless. Uh, and 313 the Zeppo and so I'm going to throw it straight to you and uh, ask you your thoughts on Helpless Helpless was really fun for me to rewatch because it's been a while since I had seen this episode and it was very different than what I remembered in terms of its context within the show as a whole and also different things stood out to me than the first time I watched it where I was really absorbing the full narrative within the scope of season three this time around um especially when i'm thinking about it in the context of the zeppo which is the next episode to come it's a very interesting exploration of power dynamics and lack thereof and um sort of how that plays into buffy as a coming of age story so what i mean by that is you know, Buffy, she's a teenage girl. She's This is her 18th birthday episode, and she's about to take on the literal and metaphorical monster of adulthood. And she's helpless. She can't do anything to fight that. You know, she has to rely on her wit and everything that's gotten her this far in life, but she is physically defenseless. Her superpowers are gone, and we have to contend with that. And then the other thing I'm really excited to talk about is the father figure dynamic between Giles and Buffy because on a second rewatch it's really stood out Joss Whedon one of the big things he's always emphasized about the show and the structure of the Scooby gang is the notion of found family Mm -hmm. and this is really an episode that solidifies and challenges that in an interesting way I thought it was interesting on this rewatch that uh, I can't remember if I ever noticed this before but not only is there the very overt, the finally overtly calling Giles out as the father figure, it's been yeah. sort of implicit this whole time, but it's very, very explicit in this episode. Uh, there's also the fact that the the villain of the piece, uh, Zachary Kralik, played beautifully by Jeff Kober, who comes back in a later season as a different character. <laughs> um, he That character has mommy issues. So yeah. so the villain is dealing with mother issues and the hero is dealing with daddy issues. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I just, for some reason, I don't, I'm not sure that ever dawned on me before. Uh, but noticing it this time and saying it out loud, I'm like, well, of course, duh. they kind of spell that out, dummy. But anyways. Yeah, it's a very fascinating dynamic. Um, There's a lot of great contrasts like that within the episode, or even the fact that Buffy's big 18th birthday plan isn't, you know, going to the bronze with her friends, going and doing something that's very adult and mature. She wants to go to an ice show with her dad. Yeah. And 
she's in this world where so much has been thrust upon her from such a young age where she's had to really mature too quickly. She's seen things that no one should have to see when they're that young. And she just wants this one last moment of childhood innocence, really. And it's taken away from her by her biological father. And then when she goes to her found father, Giles, he doesn't offer for that her that either. And worse yet, he actually takes power away from her, the power that he's helped her grow and develop this whole time. He is the person who takes that away, which makes that betrayal so much harsher. So as we've been approaching this episode in the in my rewatch, um, I've kind of been dreading it because I remember like my my memories of details have have faded over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remembered the premise of this episode and I was really, I was really uncomfortable heading into it because, um, all, basically all I remembered about it was the premise. And the, for me, the premise was that the, the surrogate father, uh, abuses his child in (laughs) like, I I was, I was really concerned what my attitude about this episode was going to be on this rewatch. Um, it seemed like it was going to age poorly. Um, it, it, I was, I was really worried that it was going to be a lot harder for me to come out of the episode sympathizing with Giles than I remembered in the past. Um, so I'm happy to say it was, it was absolutely uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. probably, probably more uncomfortable than any time I've watched it before. I'm not entirely sure why, but, um, but I did ultimately come out of it. I, I, I feel like they, they, they didn't abuse the character, meaning the character of Giles. They didn't, uh, there was nothing about the character that was broken in uh, having him sort of abuse his power over Buffy in this way. I feel like it was handled well. I, I don't know. That shouldn't come as a surprise. The series has aged well. Uh, I don't hear a lot of scholars hold this episode up as a breaking point or anything. So Mm -hmm. it shouldn't have come as a surprise, but I was pleasantly surprised to discover that I didn't actually hate Giles by the end of the episode. Yeah, it certainly is something to be concerned about, especially because Buffy is so frequently read as a feminist text. And there are a lot of feminist undercurrents in this particular episode where a bunch of old men who don't know the Slayer are making decisions about her body and her Mm -hmm. power and what she can and can't do. And they're taking that power away from her right as she's becoming a woman, so to speak. So there's definitely that undercurrent or there's the moment right before Buffy runs into Kralik on the street where she can't fight back against catcallers. And that moment really struck me as hard to watch because that's how it is in real life. And we don't want to see our superheroes. We don't want to see Superman or Buffy powerless to stop those things because part of the reason that Buffy is such a great show to watch is because you get to see the little girl on the street who maybe physically can't defend herself in real life fight back and kick some ass. And so it's it's very hard to watch something like that, and it breaks your heart in a way. But I do agree, the way Giles emotionally handles the situation in the episode does help keep it redeemable and I think is the reason it's aged so well because he truly feels guilt he sees the pain and he finds ways to reconcile with Buffy at the end and again it's not perfect it's not a betrayal that is immediately resolved but he faces consequences and 
Hugh now has to work through them together with Buffy. Yeah. <clears throat> so another thing that I don't really ever remember noticing, and this applies to all of season three uh, so far. Um, I don't remember ever really noticing this, the very scattered and haphazard way that faith is used and more importantly, not used through like the, yeah. first, through the first half of season uh, of season three. Um, obviously she becomes a very significant part of the back half of season three, but mm -hmm. I had forgotten that she was really there and not there. She was, she was working with the Scooby gang in one episode, then completely absent in the next episode. Um, like in this episode, they even meant make some reference to one of her unannounced walkabouts. Um, I don't know. Faith over the course of the series and then into angel faith becomes one of probably my top five favorite characters in all of the Whedon verse. And so I, I guess again, my faulty memory of the series was that once, once faith shows up, she's there and she really makes an impact. And I had just forgotten that she was so sort of scattershot through these early episodes. Yeah, it really feels that way, too, because Faith is such a powerful, impactful character where you really feel her presence through entire seasons rather than an episode. Rewatching this, I also really wished Faith was in Helpless. It would have been so interesting to see her dynamic with Buffy, how she handled the situation, or if they tag team somehow and there was this moment of the Slayers working together, which, again, in the whole arc of the season maybe would have been a little bit sunky, but... Yeah, I definitely, I wish Faith was around. And I also see why you love her so much because her character arc is one of the most fascinating to me in the whole Buffyverse. Yeah. And and Eliza Dishku was, of all of the cast in the series, all of the younger cast in the series at least, mm -hmm. uh, is like the only one who is more or less age appropriate. Like, I, I don't remember what her actual age was, but she was between like 18 and 20 here and she's playing 17, 18 years old or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas all the rest of the cast were in their 20s playing teens. She was, I believe, a teenager playing a teenager. Um, plus, she's just a great actress. I, I don't feel like she's used as well in other properties as she as she is in Buffy as the character of Faith. But... As for this particular episode, I guess I kind of understand why she had to be on one of her unannounced walkabouts, because the whole mm -hmm. premise of this is that uh, it's <laughs> the Slayer being depowered, and if they just have a second Slayer there who who still has her powers, that would have been awkward. But still, it's it's a little weird for me that that sometimes she's there, sometimes she's not. And anytime she's not there, I miss her. I, I just adore the character of Faith. And we get her in the next episode anyways. We get her in a very interesting way in the next episode. Oh, Yeah. Yes, we do. Um, humor in this. So the entire, the series, Buffy, and, and the Whedonverse in general, and Joss Whedon's work in general, uh, is well known for bringing the funny, for mm -hmm. its, its humor. Um, but sometimes, like, and maybe it's just, I'm a jaded, almost 50-year-old, and on this rewatch, I'm some of the sort of, quips that Buffy throws out in a fight scene. Some of them are funny and a lot of them are just kind of, okay, you know, whatever. <laughs> but uh, this one, I don't know why, but one of her, like her exchange with the vampire that she's fighting on the playground, um, like right before she starts to lose her powers, 
for some reason that exchange struck me as genuinely funny when she like knocks him down the slide. She was like, that was really funny looking. Could you do it again? <laughs> and he says, I'll kill you for that. And she's like, for that, what were you trying to kill me for before? Uh, something about her delivery of all that was <laughs> one of the better sort of quippy moments as far as I'm concerned that Buffy gets. Yeah, it's definitely a good one. And the comedy in that moment is it's great that it shines like it does because it makes what's about to happen that much more shocking and tragic because it's a really good Buffy fight. You have this awesome visual falling down the slide, the great quips, the pace is there, and then suddenly everything changes. So it's just another example of how excellently this show can execute those quick emotional reversals where one moment you're laughing and the next minute you're maybe not crying, but you're shocked, you're confused, you're scared. Yeah. Um, let's see. So what else can we talk about? Well, we've mentioned Angel a couple times and, uh, I, another detail I'd forgotten is how long it took Angel to admit to Buffy that he had stalking is not fair. That's unfair, but that he had seen her before that he'd like seen her in LA before she even technically became the Slayer. A little detail that was revealed to us several episodes ago, and I had forgotten that it took so long for Buffy herself to find that out. Yeah, I had forgotten as well. And rewatching this episode, um, I'm looking at my notes, the notes that I took watching this, and I specifically wrote, Homeboy really lays it on thick <laughs> for Angel's exchange with Buffy, where he's telling her how he's watching her. And I know it's sweet, but it is just so much. There are so many wonderful Buffy and Angel moments. And I love that we see them happy for just a minute. But, oh, my God, it is, it's a lot. It's a lot to take in, especially because she was just a random human right. at the time. So maybe I'm a little jaded there, but and she was, it was a little touch. She was, what, like 14 or something maybe at that yeah. point? So she was, what, 100? yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, I, I, I don't know. I, I've said before on the podcast, over over time I've grown to love the character of Angel, primarily in his own show, more so than on here. But, um, and I, I certainly don't dislike the, the Buffy-Angel relationship on this rewatch as much as I remembered in the past, but I have never really been a fan of the Buffy and Angel relationship. So sometimes moments like that, with the whole, I, I was worried that you would, what? I can't even remember what he said. I was worried that you would expose your heart and have it frozen by the world. And I wanted to hold you close and warm it with my own or whatever. I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. That's where my eyes just rolled right back in my head. It yeah. was, it was a lot. And it's also really interesting. Um, I feel the same way about Buffy and Angel where the first time around, I remembered feeling a lot differently about their relationship, but on a rewatch, it is sweet. It's also just for me personally. When I watch this show, I find um, the more the messier Buffy's relationship is, the more engaging it is to watch. Mm -hmm. So we haven't met Riley yet, but he's probably <laughs> the most stable person in Buffy's life, and I hate him. I can't stand him. But Angel and spoiler alert, Spike, it's fascinating to watch. So much to say about them. But again, not the best choices. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, 
I hesitate to say I hate Riley. I'm I'm a Riley defender, but I think I probably agree with the point you're making there, where <laughs> dramatically and for storytelling purposes, Angel and Spike make much better pairings for Buffy than Riley made. But uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say I hate the character of Riley. I kind of feel sorry for the character of Riley. But uh, in terms of being a boyfriend, he was a pretty boring choice for the show. So yeah, again, in real life, great choice, probably a wonderful, sweet option. But this is not real life. This is vampire land. Yeah. So we've got to really amp it up here. And yeah, I think pity is the main emotion I would feel towards Riley because he really he never stood a chance. Right. He was cool, but he wasn't cool enough. Right. Right. Um, so speaking of vampires, let's talk about Kralik a little bit more. Uh, I, I've got, I have questions. <laughs> so regular listeners will know that I like to like, might be putting it too strongly, but I am of the habit of nitpicking this show's, mythology surrounding sort of vampire physiology <laughs> um, yeah, and sort of the rules of how vampirism works and all that stuff. So my first question is going to be, uh, Kralik suffers migraines, um, which as someone who has suffered chronic migraines his entire life, that immediately makes him a sympathetic character to me. But, <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm like, what? Like I would have expected once he's turned that that sort of human condition would be cured. Cause I feel like we see plenty of examples of humans who are, have some sort of debilitating condition or injury or whatever. And as soon as they're turned, they're healed. Um, so my only kind of my, my fan wank for that, and I want to get your opinion on this, or maybe this has been answered somewhere and I don't know, but the only thing I could do to sort of rationalize that is that, since he is a vampire that uh, the watchers are using to this specific purpose, like I don't, I don't think they ever say this, but I could almost imagine that they are actually the ones that had him turned. Like mm. I, like I don't, I can't remember if the show specifies that he killed, he, he killed the 12 women. He was a serial killer and he, he yes. killed 12 women. Um, since they, say that he was a serial killer i assume that means he did that while he was a human and so maybe they they took him as a human and had him turned specifically to use in the cruciamentum trials or whatever which is a pretty horrible thing now that i'm saying that aloud and sounds exactly like, like the kind of thing the watchers council would do yeah that's a great question slash insight I did also make the same assumption you did about how and why Kralik was turned, because I don't know how he would have found a vampire in this asylum as it stands. It is particularly cruel that they turn someone, if the Watcher's Council did indeed do it, they turn someone who has been specifically so cruel to women, and we see that in the episode when he kidnaps Joyce and he holds her hostage. Mm -hmm. There's just another level to that psychopathy that we don't often see with vampires i would think the migraines perhaps aren't because specifically the watchers council is responsible for the turning rather perhaps a spell or i'm sure you have a question about this as well his vampire steroids maybe it's related to that it's very unclear how that works i thought it was really weird that he had so much roid range because he is again 
a literal vampire. Yeah. So yeah, there's two, I guess two other things about him that seems to set him apart from most of the other run of the mill vampires we meet. There's the, the, well, I guess you just described it as his roid rage, um, where in practice, what we get to see is that Buffy holds him at cross, holds him at bay with a cross. And this goes some distance towards sort of disproving the notion the the implicit idea that the show has set up that crosses and holy symbols somehow kind of project some kind of barrier that actually holds mm-hmm. vampires at bay. Apparently what they do is they, is vampires know that they hurt. And so vampires just choose to not get close to them and whatever, whatever psychopathy we've got going on with Kralik here, he gets off on that rather than fears it. And so he, he actually steps right into her cross, which is something that, I mean, we can we see Spike do something like that later in a completely different way, but um, mm-hmm. so far we haven't really seen any other vampire that I can think of off the top of my head uh, do that. And then uh, the other thing, and maybe this is just for plot convenience, less so than something unique to the character of Kralik. What the heck is up with, uh, his the watcher that he turns turns really fast yeah that's true and i didn't even think about that when i was watching it but he really does turn quickly which yeah it could be either kralik is extra powerful because he's on vampire steroids and he's been turned by the watchers or perhaps i'm sure when this episode was written it was the convenience of having him turn quickly so then kralik has his little henchman. But if you're looking at it from the mythological perspective of the show, it's certainly interesting to think that either this particular vampire is more powerful than others, or there's something going on about his bite that makes people turn more quickly. Again, I kind of wish it was spelled out a little more in the episode, Mm -hmm. but um, I think, I think just for my own personal fan winking, I kind of want to believe that he is some sort of special vampire. Like he's, he's just extremely, he's an extreme vampire. (laughs) He's he's, uh, he's on vampire steroids, as you keep saying, uh, because that just, I mean, to me that fits with the, the horribleness of the watcher's council. As you pointed out, it's particularly cruel. If the watcher's council is responsible for singling this person out for this purpose, knowing that it's a care it's a person who had been so specifically cruel to women in the past seems particularly like on the nose for them um and i kind of want to believe that about them at this point quentin travers uh even though uh he was not quite as just outright evil as i remembered him being in this episode i know he comes back and we get to see more of his obnoxiousness but mm-hmm. still i just he's a smarmy bastard. And I really like to believe that they are really tipping the line between, uh, anti-hero and outright villain. Yeah, certainly. And even if the watchers council mythologically was not responsible for turning Kralik, 
they still chose him and knew enough about his backstory to convey that. Mm-hmm. So they they picked him knowing that he was murderous, yeah. he was cruel to women, yeah. and he was criminally dangerous. So the other thing that's interesting is vampire psychology, where you may have someone who in life was a quote-unquote good human being, and they're turned, and they turn evil. But when you have someone who is already, by our social standards criminal and psychopath and by social standards i mean just human morality generally i think you can agree kralik's the worst (laughs) right he's the worst uh you know it's really interesting that then that gets heightened to a dangerous level and an independent council thinks it's okay to lock him in a cage with a teen girl to fight to the death just because it's tradition so there is definitely a level of cruelty and also just ignorance really in that decision that makes it so frustrating. Mm -hmm. And again, further, if we're reading this as a feminist text, if we're going back to making decisions about women's bodies without their consent, sort of the insanity of making a decision that extreme and that dangerous and directly harmful without even asking for advice or consent or giving some sort of warning. The The whole caveat that the Slayer can't know in advance just seems unnecessary to me. Yeah. Like, wouldn't it make more sense for the slayers to know from the very beginning that this is a thing they're going to have to do so that they can, they can study fighting techniques and they can prepare themselves for this. Like what, what is gained by tricking them and setting them up to fail like this? It's, it's weird, but yeah. And then your slayer dies if she doesn't know about this test. And you have to train a whole new one. You're spending so much time and energy training her already. This seems very easy to include. It's not going to make it less difficult if you lock her in a room with no power. It just gives her a fighting chance. Right. I I will say one, uh, one interesting sort of wrinkle that was added at the very end is when Quentin points out that it's, that the cruciamentum is not just a, rite of passage for the slayer it's also a rite of passage for her watcher um but i would fault his <laughs> his assessment that uh, giles failed um because i guess what he meant by that is it's a test to see if the watcher will do what the watcher is told mm-hmm. um whereas to my way of thinking um what this proves is that um just just as buffy has been and has to be a different kind of slayer from any other slayer that's ever been. Um, Giles has to be a different kind of watcher than there's ever been before, not only to deal with a different kind of slayer, but also just because the world is changing. And obviously the paradigm that the watchers council has set up with their slayer practices for what he say, 12 centuries. Um, Mm -hmm. It's not, you're not gaining any ground you're treading water at best with this particular method. And so throw a completely different type of slayer into the mix and give her a completely different type of watcher. And maybe you'll get somewhere. Yeah. I think especially it's so fascinating that Giles is labeled a failure after this, because in my eyes, he's failed in Buffy's eyes. He's failed. But for the exact opposite reasons than Mm -hmm. what Quentin identifies, he's failed because he's prioritized orders and tradition over his relationship with her. 
and over her well-being and all of the things that make Giles such an incredible watcher and someone who is so special in the world of the show and in his relationship with Buffy, forgetting the value of those things, that's the real failure here. So it's interesting and also frustrating because Giles isn't directly given a chance to redeem himself, which he, he will eventually, but in the immediate aftermath of the show, he's just fired, he's removed but it's one of the most frustrating things about the Watchers Council. I have I have a lot of issues with them throughout the show, truthfully. But one thing that Buffy does very well is counteracts tradition and finds ways to change it. Season seven is really all about that. But <laughs> it, it just it gets crazier as time goes on. But it's for the best because just as you've said, this world is changing and it's not enough anymore to just follow tradition because if tradition doesn't work, where is the value in it? Right. Um, so I was going to say the last thing about this episode I wanted to talk about, but then I noticed two notes that I had completely glo- breezed past on my screen here. One, just one more element of Kralik that could potentially be him, be proof that he's a, a different kind of roided out vampire, or probably just like the quickly turning minion was just convenient <laughs> convenient for plot or for dramatic purposes is the fact that he drinks the holy water and it's not until it sits in his stomach for a minute <laughs> that it does anything like any other vampire you would expect like they blister as soon as they even touch water so his his mouth should have been on fire as soon as he started drinking that but whatever um and then the other thing is just i love the sort of geek cred that oz gets in this episode when he and xander have the debate over kryptonite and uh Xander's like they're talking about gold versus red kryptonite mm-hmm. and and, uh, and Oz is actually correct Oz, as as a lifelong geek I can c- confirm that <laughs> Oz is correct it is the gold kryptonite that uh, depowers red crypt red kryptonite just makes Superman act crazy so Anyways. yeah there are great Superman references here in Helpless and then also in the Zeppo yeah uh, Xander is called out as Jimmy Olsen pretty explicitly. And I know it happens a few other times, but it's just really fun if you're watching them back to back, as I recently did, to see those sorts of parallels or the parallels between Buffy's helplessness and Xander's helplessness yeah. and how they're different, how they're similar. And um, comparing that sort of supernatural helpness, helplessness to the helplessness of being a teen boy who is kind of a mess and says funny things. Well, I will just pretend that uh, I was... Uh, very deliberate when I paired these episodes together because of the <laughs> Superman references that were made in both. And, uh, <laughs> and as far as my listeners know, that's, that's how it is. Yeah. Um, all right. So there was, there was one more thing I was going to say in a, uh, in helpless, but I'll find a way to work it into the conversation later because that was a perfect transition into the Zeppo. So let's, let's move into the Zeppo, which is, uh, I believe Okay, so Dan Weber is the writer on this, actually. Yes. Yeah, and or I'm sorry, Weber. I <laughs> my autocorrect changed that to Weber, but anyways. <laughs> and I believe this is the only episode he does. Is that true? No, he wrote one other episode, only one other on Buffy, and it's Lovers Walk, which is probably one of the top two monologues on the show. Dan Weber wrote. I, wow, that's one of my favorite spike moments. And I completely forgot that uh, this guy 
wrote that, so shame on me. But um, anyways, I, I was just going to say what a shame it is that uh, we don't get more of him as a writer because I feel like the writing in this episode is particularly good. Yeah, one thing that's really interesting about Dan Weber also is after Buffy, he went on to produce The Simpsons. So he's been doing recent work on The Simpsons, but also Futurama, American Dad, and a lot of other animated comedies. And knowing that now is so interesting because I can see these little inflections of Simpsons-esque humor Excuse me. Um, throughout this episode where there are all these little clips or the pacing of it, there's just something about it where I completely see that now. There are a lot of quips. There are a lot of, like, uh, when I take my notes for this podcast, I don't usually pull out a ton of quotes that I that I liked, but mm-hmm. there are like five or six quotes from this particular episode that I had to write down just because I thought they were so great. So, um, yeah, I mean, I... I I'm not a uh, Simpsons scholar, so I'm, I'm not familiar enough with the Simpsons to have recognized sort of the Dan Weber style. But uh... yeah, I am not a Simpsons scholar, but I am a lifelong fan. So mm-hmm. it was more there was just something that clicked for me immediately once I saw that on his IMDb page, where it just it made absolute perfect sense. Well. Uh, so this, this is the episode with your boy. So <laughs> well, let's, uh, let's get into it. So what you, what are your thoughts on this Zeppo? Why, why did you request this episode of the podcast? Great question. So really two reasons. One, I think I can speak the most to Xander's character because I've spent the most time with him outside of watching the show. I've spent the most time thinking about him in a way where I haven't thought about Giles or Buffy or Willow, um, except in passing, really. So that was one thing where I figured if I'm going to go on a podcast and talk about Buffy, I should probably talk about Buffy in a semi-eloquent way, so it's not just me shouting emotion for two straight hours. And... Also because the Zeppo, when I think about Buffy, just when I think about the show, this is one of the first three episodes that comes to my mind. The first is Once More With Feeling, the second is Grave, and the third is the Zeppo. And to me, those three really encompass all of the different emotional beats that the show can hit. So I thought that was a great place to jump into the conversation and talk about an episode that really does a lot of what Buffy does best, explore... um, and break down gender stereotypes, develop characters in a really unusual way, and question the natural pecking order, and be really, really funny in a way you'd never see coming. So I said a little bit earlier that this episode is um, arguably the high watermark for Xander, maybe across <laughs> the entire series. I don't know... I don't know if people would debate that with me or not, probably, but um, I, I mean, I, I know a couple of people that would say, no, the yellow crayon moment is the shining Xander moment. But uh, in terms of just like a stand, kind of a standalone episode, for me, this is Xander's shining moment. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, the yellow crayon moment is probably the biggest Xander moment in terms of the overall show because it takes six seasons, in a sense, to build him up to that point where he can do something that big. 
But the Zeppo is the best representation of Xander as a character. And it's really a love letter to his character in the sense where he goes unappreciated for so much of the show and is overlooked and is a punchline. And he finally gets his due, for better or worse. And in the years since, as you've pointed out, people have had a lot to say about him, better or worse, uh, myself included. He's not a perfect character. I don't know that anyone on the show is. Again, it's been 20 years our discourse has changed a lot, and also we've had 20 years to pick this show apart. So, mm-hmm. of course, there are going to be character flaws. There are going to be problematic things. And also, Nick Brendan is not the best person, as it turns out, in real life. Yeah. So that further complicates our reading of the character. But in this ep- episode, this episode, I still find a lot to love. Uh, yeah, I have many i've discovered many many issues i talk about it so much on this podcast because it's felt like a revelation to me apparently this has been a long time coming the the academics have been breaking down the character of xander for many many years but it's only been on this uh front to back rewatch uh to do this podcast that i've really discovered how problematic he is so i i kind of lean into it a little bit um but i i do want to mention and what we'll, we'll We'll get more into this in detail once we reach the point in the episode where the faith thing happens, because mm. I think there may be some yeah. stuff to talk about there. But uh, at this pa- at this most recent uh, Slayage uh, academic conference that I attended, uh, there was a paper that was presented by uh, Renee St. Louis. I believe mm-hmm. it actually won the Mr. Pointy Award for uh, long form presentation. Uh, but the title of the paper was Demon Magnet in the Friend Zone, Reconsidering Xander Harris in the Age of, <laughs> in the age of Me Too. Um, and it was a fascinating paper mm-hmm. because like she the the Renee made no bones about the fact she stated up front she cannot stand the character of Xander Harris. OK, like, like she completely hates him and she wanted mm-hmm. us to know going into that. But the reason I, I bring this up is even in this paper that. At least in the planning stages, she had kind of intended to be just an evisceration of this character of Xander Harris. Mm-hmm. Um, even in the, even in that framework, she found some fascinating ways to kind of take up for the character of Xander and to point out how, you know, for as problematic as he may be, and certainly through the lens of 2018 with you know, our different ways of looking at this kind of stuff. He's a problematic character. He's, he's also a sympathetic character in a lot of ways that she, she, as the, as the author of the paper was not expecting. So she ended her presentation by saying that much to her chagrin, she had come out of this process being slightly more understanding of Xander Harris than she had planned to be when she went into it. So Yeah, I will also certainly say, in my personal opinion, Xander gets much better as the series progresses, whereas in his earliest days, in the early seasons, really seasons one through four, let's say, he's, I don't want to say he's trash, because I feel like that's what the internet (laughs) wants me to say, and I I don't feel that, but he is certainly a dumb teenage boy a lot of the time, and he doesn't you know, make great decisions. He says really stupid, insensitive things sometimes. And is that because he's a teenager? Is it because of the time the show was written? Yes and yes. But 
it doesn't mean that's not worth having that conversation and looking at that at his actions and seeing what's redeemable and what's not. He certainly exists in a gray area in terms of um, gender roles on the show and what's acceptable and what's not. And that is why there's so much scholarship around him exploring his role, how he fits into the Scooby gang. Um, Lorna Jowett has a great, a lot of great stuff on Xander in her book, Sex and the Slayer, mm-hmm. which is very helpful in my research. Rhonda Wilcox has written a lot of great stuff about Xander. Um, there's one particular episode, um, essay she wrote. I believe it's called, um, for those of us in the audience who are mean, laughter, and I forgot the rest of the title, but it's an excellent essay and absolutely worth the read. Um, talks a lot about this episode, and that's in Why Buffy Matters. So recommend checking out both of those books if you're a big Buffy fan, if you have, want to learn more about Xander. Um, Renee's presentation sounds also like really, really fascinating. I definitely want to hear it because I'm, I'm very curious generally about Xander opinions as a person who spent a lot of time researching him. And yeah, I don't, I don't have a coherent conclusion yet about this character and I don't know that I ever will. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'm comfortable with that. I'm comfortable with not (laughs) even once I make it all the way through this series, I think I will be comfortable not having a a satisfactory closing statement on Xander, which, or, or really any of the characters actually, yeah, because I, I feel like that just makes them feel more like real characters, more like real people. Um, like you shouldn't, a character doesn't need to have a satisfying conclusion. Like you don't need to have a bow, a nice neat bow on the end of something for, for it to be a compelling character or a compelling story. So, yeah, um, and I mean, if you look at characters like Spike as well, mm-hmm. again, very much in a gray area, but that doesn't mean it's not happening on other television shows like The Sopranos or Game of Thrones or Breaking mm-hmm. Bad, where we see that same kind of gray morality where, at the very least, we're having a great engaging conversation about it, and hopefully it's making you think about your own actions and the real world in that sense. But yeah, TV morality, much like real life, is not always black and white. Right. Um, so, um, I, while we're talking about Xander's <laughs> sort of pro- yes or no problematic nature, <laughs> kind, one of the early moments in this episode with Xander is him continuing to assure people that he's not wrestling in a gay way <laughs> because Xander has to continue to demonstrate some degree of homophobia <laughs> and it's so strange at the time this this episode came out in uh, january of 1999 mm. at the time i feel like it got a lot of slack because that was just the time and yeah and here we are 20 years later and it's difficult to watch that and not notice that was it was it necessary xander for you to can <laughs> like did you have to make that joke but i mean that's, I suppose, the Xander that we all love to hate or hate to love or whatever. Um, yeah, that's I, probably the least redeemable line in the whole episode. Well, there's that and there's a line also about um, Xander taking a slow test that oh, really yeah. in 2018 just don't work. They yeah. absolutely do not work. Not redeemable. I am at no point in this podcast going to try to defend them because they shouldn't be in there. They shouldn't have been in there. I understand why at the time it seemed acceptable because people weren't, uh, we didn't have social media. We weren't able to 
have eloquent conversations in the same way we are now about these things, but definitely not great. Now, the other thing, I, I try to play devil's advocate from mm-hmm. time to time. So even while I'm kind of bad mouthing Xander or whatever, I also, I try to remind myself and, and my listeners that uh, some of this stuff isn't necessarily a flaw of the series or the writers or whatever. You, it could be read as a, as a quote unquote flaw of the character because the character is a teenage boy in mm-hmm. 1999 and like it or not politically correct or not sensitive or not teenage boys in 1999 were probably making gay jokes and talking about retards in high school. So it's, it's not pleasant to see on TV and we can discuss how, how unpleasant it is and how inappropriate it is. But you could also, I suppose, make an argument that it's an accurate representation of a 17 year old boy in high school. Yes. And that certainly is a good point. I think there's that argument and it is valid, but if we're looking at it in the 20 year lens where we're also considering the Me Too movement, we're considering modern 2018 context, I'm going to still say it's not worth it. And right. even if you're a teenage boy, you've lived for 17, 18 years on the planet. So that's long enough to know better in my book. Right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So um, we talked about how there are a lot of great quotes and funny lines in this episode. One of one of my favorites in the entire episode is a Willow line that I am stunned. I don't see quoted more often. Like there there are sort of the standard funny willow lines that everybody quotes like bored mm-hmm. now or whatever. And I'm just shocked that the, uh, I brought marshmallows. Occasionally I'm callous and strange. Occasionally I'm callous and strange <laughs> is a wonderful quote. And I laughed out. I literally laughed out loud at that scene because I'd forgotten that line and I never hear anybody quote that. Yeah, that is so funny and so overlooked. And it's also the jumping off point in the episode, really, for this great inversion of the A and B plots. So for listeners who are maybe not familiar with those terms, the A plot of the show is the main action. So normally Buffy fighting the big bad that week. with A A for Apocalypse. Yes, and B for (laughs) Buffy. Except in this case, well, actually, the B plot in this case does stand for Buffy. But normally it would be where Xander's relegated or whoever the side character of that week is. So later on when we've got Andrew Wells, he's very often there. Mm-hmm. Um, or if we have side plots with villains. So here that inversion, that narrative inversion, um, a simple structure flip works so well. And it makes the whole episode so much funnier and brings humor to parts of the episode where normally there would be none. What, so one of my favorite demonstrations of that whole flipping the a and b plot like one of the payoffs for me is the we were just talking about the over dramatic the melodramatic romance between buffy and angel mm-hmm. in the previous episode and here we get another of those scenes with the the you know confessions of love and the mm-hmm. swelling music and <laughs> swelling whatever and then, <laughs> and then xander just walk blunders into the scene and completely interrupts the flow and the music stops dead and buffy and angel are both just kind of blinking at him un like uncomprehending until he's like okay bad time and walks away and then we leave that scene and we continue on with xander um that was that was beautiful just to deflate 
that completely overblown melodramatic moment that way was fantastic. It is so funny. And one of Xander's best moments is an everyman. So really um, something that I've identified in my research in terms of his function in the Scooby gang is he's very much an everyman figure Mm -hmm. and a seer. He's emotionally perceptive. He sees what's going on around him. And that's why he's so often uh, the comic relief, because to be the comic relief and historically, this is the case, whether you're talking about Shakespeare or Buffy, you need to be someone who's really quick and observant. Because there are really two kinds of fools, so to speak, if we're going back to Shakespeare language, where you've got the natural fool, who is a bumbling Barney Fife type, or you've got an artificial fool, who's somebody who's very quick. They're not necessarily goofy looking, they're not clumsy per se, but they're somebody who's always quick with a joke, always has something to say. And that's really who Xander is. And it's exactly that kind of moment where he busts in, which is more of a natural fool move. But he's quick to back it up and, you know, oops, my bad. Didn't know I was interrupting something. It's just so funny. It's great. It's great. And uh, like that, for me, that's the the shining example of it. But this episode does bits with that throughout where, like you say, what would normally be the A plot, the A for Apocalypse. We've got the whole Helm office about to open. We get that stupid rubber monster from Prophecy Girl that I gave so mm-hmm. much hell on this podcast. It comes back because, of course, it does. But all of that is happening. That's all tertiary. It's all happening in the background. In fact, literally in the background, because at one point we get Xander and the the undead boys chasing him past mm-hmm. the library and one of the, the undead boys just stops and like looks in and is like whoa and then continues running on <laughs> um that's it's just beautiful it's beautiful and the the episode does the does an amazing thing where i spent the whole time just sort of laughing at the fact that this major apocalypse was happening in the background was being stopped in the background and i was and i didn't even want to know what was going on because i was much more interested in xander and all this but then we get the the denouement with Giles and Buffy and Willow and Oz hanging out afterwards in the aftermath and they're all beat up and bruised and cut and they are talking. It could have just been a couple throwaway lines about, I can't believe when you chopped that thing's head head off or whatever. Like mm-hmm. it could have been another part of the joke, but it plays just long enough. And the, the, the acting, the character, the, the, the actor's delivery of the lines is given with just as much gravitas as it would be if the episode had actually been about all that stuff. So I actually ended up watching that scene and kind of regretting that we didn't get to see the amazing thing that Giles just did. Yeah, no, I was very curious. The line that stands out to me in that final scene is actually uh, Willow says something. I'm never going to forget that thing's real. uh, That thing's face. I mean, it's real face. Yeah. And I just want to know what it was. At the same time, I don't know that the episode is lesser for it, that we don't see it, because we get to imagine whatever that real face was, which is probably a bit scarier than what 90s special effects would have allowed. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, I uh, I agree with you in theory, but having just made the joke about that stupid rubber monster at the uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> in Prophecy Girl, I'm like, it's probably for the best that we didn't actually see its real face. But mm-hmm. um so we talked about the the um, Superman references that cross both of these episodes. And 
we get two Jimmy Olsen references in this. Uh, one of them, unsurprisingly, from Xander, uh, and it's used to great comic effect because uh, it completely goes over Giles's head. But the other one comes from Cordelia, and I'm I'm really fascinated by the by the fact that Cordelia post Xander leans way more into sort of like geek specific insults and stuff than like it's hard to imagine Cordelia before Xander Harris even knowing who the Zeppo like who Zeppo or mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen were but having been in a relationship with Xander she's absorbed these geek references and now that's what she uses when she insults people that is a great point and something I've truly never thought about. But yeah, she goes right back to being a mean girl, but one who is a little bit more pop culture savvy, which also in turn makes her criticism of Xander that much more biting because she's speaking to him in his own language. Yeah. And so she's really that much more an external version of the inner critic everybody has. And she sounds that much more like probably Xander beating himself up internally about not being good enough to be part of the Scooby gang. So in this episode, to me, Cordelia really functions more as that inner saboteur externally. And it's part of what makes her so fun and part of what makes it so triumphant when Xander can walk away from her insults at the end. That's a fantastic observation. And uh, yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, And like as much grief as I give Xander, like I, I had a smile on my face when he was walking away from Cordelia at the end, like, Un, unfazed by her quips or whatever to the point where she was like what what what's going on like she didn't mm. understand why she couldn't stab him the way she had before but um what else do we get here oh i <laughs> so another question of the episode to episode mythology um past episodes have uh no, no, that's not true. Let me let me think about this. Uh, future episodes are going to demonstrate that raising the dead uh, is difficult and mm-hmm. sort of dramatic and has horrible consequences. Um, but this is another example in these early seasons. This is like the, I don't know, third or fourth example of characters bringing other characters back from the dead. And it really seems like super easy. And like, there really aren't any side effects. Yeah. That's a really interesting point, especially because um, as the uh, series continues, it seems more and more that if your death is natural and not magic based, which comes back in a big way in season six, Mm -hmm. you can't do anything to bring that person back no matter how much you want to. And it doesn't seem that, um, Jake? Oh, Jack. Jack's gang. Yeah. yeah. Is um, killed in a magic way. They're, you know, just dumb punk-ass jocks. So it's very confusing. I have to assume it's just there for narrative purposes and the mythology of raising the dead hasn't been fleshed out in a complete way in the Buffy's, Buffy writer's room at this time. So I guess that's the free pass, but it's definitely a good question because it's a tough task and Jack is just able to do it like that. No problem. In a very short time period also, going back to the turning and helpless, just a really quick turnaround here on Raising the Dead. Yep. I mean, 
obviously these buddies had talked about this kind of thing before because when mm-hmm. uh when oh god what was his name uh bob played by michael cudlitz of uh walking dead fame who i did not remember had been in this but when bob comes out he's like you i can't what did he say he says something like you raised me or whatever so i just get mm-hmm. the sense that these four buddies had 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 talks about this in the past or whatever so maybe this is a plan they always had i don't know well, to get initiated in their gang, you do have to die. So it could be that once Jack was back, they decided, you know what, we're just going to we're going to do it with you, bro. We're yeah. all going to die and then you'll raise us and we'll have an undead gang, which again really does sound like a plan so stupid only teenage <laughs> boys could come up with it. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, speaking as a former teenage boy, I I would believe that. Um Yeah, dude, you just got to die. It's super easy. <laughs> It's no big deal. Come on. Yeah. Everybody's doing it. Um, Willow at this point in the series has, uh, has come to the stage where she's able to use magic in combat. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty interesting. Um, Giles still tries to sort of hold her back, but at the very beginning of the episode, I mean, she's not throwing fireballs or anything like that, but she's in the middle of the fight and she's using her magic for sort of combat purposes, which I thought was interesting again uh, in an earlier episode uh willow made some uh comment to buffy about how you know like real power in witchcraft takes takes decades or whatever and i think Mm -hmm. i think i made the joke of or in the case of this series series maybe three months (laughs) (laughs) but uh but yeah willow is progressing pretty darn quickly along her path of witchcraft yeah, well, to borrow a phrase from Harry Potter, she truly is the brightest witch of her age. <laughs> yeah, well, literally by season seven. Um, oh, actually, yeah, great point. Great point. Yeah. Um, what else have we got here? Uh, so let's talk about... Oh, wait, another line that I have to throw out because I love it is Giles, I always have a jelly. I'm always the one that says, let's have a jelly in the mix. <laughs> another great line that I don't hear quoted nearly enough. Um, so let's talk about Xander. I want to bring that, uh, that Xander Harris and the age of me Too paper back in, because I said that over the course of it, she, uh, the author had discovered, uh, certain things that made the character of Xander seem a little more sympathetic or, or, uh, made it easier to empathize with the character. At least one of the things that she cited was this episode, uh, and specifically the, one of many things that at the time you could view as just being played for laughs. And that's the fact that Xander gets to have sex with faith mm-hmm. and the way that whole thing happens, um, is like, I mean, it's funny. It's Xander being taken advantage of. And, you know, once again, he's sort of emasculated. He doesn't get to be the, the, quote unquote man in the relationship. He's the mm-hmm. one that's used and then kicked out of the the motel room or whatever. It's all pretty funny and played for laughs. Uh, but like in reality, again, looking back at this through the lens of 2018, uh, at least the author f- framed that as in essence, Xander was just kind of raped by faith. And whereas certain other characters in the series, when that happens, it's a truly genuinely traumatic moment and they are given arcs of episodes in order to deal with the repercussions and so on and so forth. Xander is 
essentially he's raped and then kicked out of the door and not even given five minutes of screen time in order to court, sort of wrap his head around that. It's, it's basically a sexual assault that's played for laughs. And yeah, that, and, and that kind of his relation, his it's, it's hinted many times over the course of the series that he has a, a borderline abusive relationship within his larger family. And mm-hmm. that's not ever like really dealt with. Yeah. There are a lot of problematic or upsetting things in Xander's backstory about the Harris family that never really are addressed. Or even the fact in this episode that uncle Rory was arrested for a bunch of DUIs mm-hmm. and there's clearly a history of substance abuse in the Harris family, but it's played for laughs. So there's a lot of interesting things that are happening with class there also, where Xander is often portrayed as a working class character where everyone else is in a more stable middle-class setting. So there's that class conflict where Xander and Faith are both often seen as lower class characters. So there's that dynamic at play as well. In addition to the fact that in the scene, pretty clearly, if you're watching it in 2018, there is no explicit consent it mm-hmm. sort of assumed that, oh, Xander is in this room with a hot girl. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he is so lucky because he's about to get lucky. And yeah, he has maybe three minutes and three lines to process that entire experience, which for anybody can be a lot. So even if it was completely consensual, you would expect him to have a little bit more time. But because the gender roles traditionally, quote unquote, are flipped in this situation, it's a joke. And is that a 1999 teenage boy thing? Yeah, absolutely. But it is certainly worth examining from a different perspective now with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah. And uh, on an earlier episode of the podcast, when we were talking about teacher's pet, this subject also came up. And and though he didn't ultimately end up having sex with his uh, praying mantis teacher, um, the, the notion that in that episode, that was the idea that, you know, teenage boys would love to be invited back to their sexy teacher's apartment or whatever, uh, for sex education, uh, in reality that, you know, that's, that's a whole, there are questions of power dynamics there and statutory rape and all that stuff that the show obviously wasn't intending to deal with. So, yeah, I mean, these are things that are kind of built into the comedic structure of the show that, uh, -hmm. that need to, be looked at in a different light nowadays, I suppose. Yeah. Well, a lot of the time too, and this isn't just a Buffy problem, but it's something that more on a large scale happens quite often. When we think about masculine sexuality, we think about it as something that can't be controlled. It's an impulse. And so we see that in season one, when Xander turns into a hyena and tries Mm -hmm. to assault Buffy and, you know, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't control it. When that's flipped, when feminine sexuality isn't controlled. It's funny because people are uncomfortable with it and they don't know how to process it. So very much in a show that very often um, flips gender roles in a way that's progressive and important. And a lot of the time I would argue that does happen with Sander where he's um, representing a different type of masculinity masculinity than you'd normally see in an action adventure type show. Um, when that is healthy and emotionally perceptive, there are also a lot of really problematic things that don't get addressed and he doesn't get his fair due in the way a female character might. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, just because Xander and Oz had a, a great, uh, an, another great 
scene together in this episode, just like they did in the last one, uh, talking about how Xander frequently plays uh, a different different kind of masculine representation on this show than is perhaps typical. Um, Oz is the same way. I mean, Oz isn't quite as, um, I don't know, betrayed by his portrayal, maybe, as Xander is. Uh, I don't know many people that sort of complain about Oz's toxic masculinity, um, but he certainly doesn't seem like the typical masculine stereotype. No, Oz, Oz is one thing Xander is not, in that Oz is effortlessly cool and also a werewolf. So two things Xander is not. But <laughs> well, he, I, I would say being a werewolf is being effortlessly cool, but that's just me. <laughs> they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. That's for sure. But Oz has the self-confidence that Xander lacks at the start of the Zeppo. And towards the end of the episode, Xander's found it. That's why he can, he can walk away from Cordelia. That's why he's not afraid to face death. He's found that inner confidence within himself, and that brings with it a level of maturity and, again, a different representation of masculinity than we normally see because his tough guy moment is accepting. He's leaning into fear. He's leaning into his emotions and not trying to just punch Jack in the face or defuse the bomb in a rash, irrational way. He's really thinking things through and thinking, you know what, I'm not afraid to face death but I know you are because I can see your emotions and I can see that you are so scared that you'll never let this happen. I, I so want to talk about that moment. Um, I want to get your take on it because it sounds like you are, you're tying that into your uh, reading of Xander as being the, uh, what'd you say? The artificial fool. Yeah. Being, being the perceptive uh, funny one. Um, I, I want to hear that read because I, I watched that scene and I was kind of, I was a little bit chilled by that scene because to me it read like Xander was sort of just resolving himself and perhaps a little bit relieved at the notion that he was about to be blown up and he gets the line. I like the quiet, which could, that line could be delivered in a way that would come across as sort of a badass. I'm not afraid to die. What about you? Uh, like Hollywood hero, moment but the way it played for me in this particular scene as performed by nicholas brendan was i'm just ready for this to be over that's a really interesting take and truthfully about the opposite of what i see when i watch that scene so i see how it could be read that way how xander could be resigning himself but to me that reading undermines all of the work that he's done in terms of character growth in this episode up until that point because if Xander is resigning himself to death to this fate that really undermines this whole journey he's gone on where he's been put in direct contrast with these typical tough guy jock frat bro type characters and he's seen what they're like he's you know been one of the boys and it's not for him it's not something he's good at or something he can really sustainably do and he's found self-acceptance there. This isn't who I am. And you know what? I'm not scared of death because I've faced things you could never face. I'm one of the Scoobies and I am worthy. I have faced this. I know what it's like. And you will never know that because the death that you've seen is not the death I have seen. And as the series goes on, Xander's, you know, the death he sees is going to get even darker than what Jack will ever have the chance to. 
So my reading of that is Xander's using his perception here to save the day rather than anything else, because that is, to me, his superpower is his ability to read people. He's very intelligent. He just doesn't always show it. Again, on the surface, very often a dumb teen boy. But there are certain things that happen throughout the show where we know he's really smart. When he gets turned into a soldier on Halloween, he also gains a lot of military knowledge that he brings up at convenient moments. Hmm. Doesn't happen all the time. He needs to be prompted usually by the situation at hand. But he knows that. He thinks things through. And he can see when things are going wrong with certain characters like Don later on in the series that no one else is noticing. That is a dramatically better read on that scene than I had. And I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure that you have nailed what exactly they were going for and, and what that scene was meant to represent. And I, I will rewatch the episode with that in mind. Um, I, I'm, I'm positive you were correct. And I wish that I had read it that way. Um, but just on this viewing, I was like, Oh, that is, that's, super depressing <laughs> like I, it really to me sounded almost like an exhalation of okay i'm especially since it cu- it cuts from the line i like the quiet and then it it cuts to a scene of the apocalypse in the library where they're all fighting and yelling at each other and throwing things and it's it's super chaotic um but no your your reading on that is is infinitely better than mine was Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad that I made you see the ending of the Zeppo as half full. <laughs> uh, I I do not for a second believe uh, that this is a a plot hole or whatever. People use the term plot hole so inaccurately. But mm-hmm. I, I'm surprised that I don't hear more people complain because you just mentioned the fact that uh, he's after the Halloween episode, he's got the soldier persona still in him. And he pulls that knowledge like, like out of the hat mm-hmm. at various times. I wonder how many people have ever complained that in the moment where he's trying to defuse the bomb, he wasn't able to become a soldier who remembered how to defuse a bomb or something. I mean, obviously the argument could be made that not, not every soldier knows how to defuse a bomb, mm-hmm. but still, I just, as soon as you meant, reminded me of the whole soldier thing, I was like, oh, I'll bet people complain that he should have been the soldier and defused the bomb. I'm sure someone out there is going to die on that hill. Yeah. And it's not me. Okay. But my, if I have to justify it, I would say, A, I definitely agree. Not every soldier knows how to defuse a bomb. And especially if you're maybe a cadet mm-hmm. and you've just, you've just joined, you got your basic training. It's useful. You know how to load a gun and shoot it, but maybe you didn't get to bomb squad yet. And also, it is constructed in a very haphazard way where even if you're used to dealing with a bomb that's maybe put together a little bit differently or engineered in a different way, if it's been put together by a bunch of zombies hell-bent on destroying a high school, it might not be as clear what to cut where. Right, right, yeah. (sighs) Okay. Well, I don't... I don't know if I have anything else. Oh, I was going to ask just because this came up in my discussion uh, last week with Mary Ellen. uh, The idea that even though in this series in Buffy, the vampire slayer, the powers that be the capital P capital T capital B have not actually Mm -hmm. been named so far. Uh, This is the second week in a row where there's an episode that has at least hinted at the powers that be. Uh, which will Ooh. become a major 
a major player in the uh, Angel series. Um, and so I just wonder if the spirit guides that Giles goes to consult, if, if, if that was somehow related to the powers that be. What do you think? Wow, that is a great deep thought connection that I had not made in any viewing of the Zeppo. And I have seen this episode. The only one I've seen more than the Zeppo is Once More With Feeling because I watch it when I'm sad because you can't be sad and watch Once More With Feeling. I'm convinced of this. <laughs> Agree. Agree. Just can't. It's got good show tunes. Yeah. Spoiler, there's a musical episode. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. You've ruined it for people. Now they know. I know. There are jazz hands and everything. But oh to, to answer the question, I... I wouldn't be surprised, but I don't know if Giles would fully know. Yeah. I have to imagine he has some sense as a watcher of the powers that be, but I don't even know if the Watcher's Council fully understands how big and far-reaching they are, because an angel, the powers that be are fleshed out in such a different way, mm -hmm. where I don't know um, if narratively at the time, again, in the writer's room, not sure if they knew, but yeah. in the mythology of the show, I do think that has to be where those spirit guides are coming from, especially because they're speaking in Latin, mm -hmm. very old, very ancient. Um, something that also, as a person who studied Latin for a minute here or there, <laughs> happens in a very haphazard way in the show where sometimes they're speaking Latin in the way they should, sometimes they're not. Sometimes yeah. the pronunciation is wrong. And I wonder if that impacts the spells, but that's really more of a willow discussion. I, uh, I, I, I just, uh, I want to take this opportunity to, to remind listeners that um, the, I can't remember which Ethan rain episode it was, but that one of the first appearances of Ethan rain, he is chanting. It must've been the first, it must've been the first one when uh, the, the Mark of Igon or whatever, Anyways, one one of his earliest episodes, he was performing a, an incantation and he was reading Latin. And I remember remarking at the time that that is the first and possibly only time in the series where someone is performing a spell and chanting in Latin. And it sounded legit. <laughs> like uh, it sounded like, hmm, if there was a candle going in my room right now while I'm watching this show, something might happen. Yeah, Zan uh, I was about to say Xander, this is not his scene, it's Giles' scene. Um, his delivery is actually pretty accurate. So in Latin, when you say things with a W, it sounds wrong, but it is right. So he's saying a lot of words that start with the letter V. I don't know why the Romans pronounced it this way. They did not have the concept of W yet. They had a limited alphabet. So that could be part of it, but it's interesting that for whatever reason, that's what it sounds like. So this is actually more accurate, but the delivery of it by Giles is a little more passive-aggressive than perhaps the ideal spell. <laughs> passive-aggressive spell working. Great. Yeah, Giles is pretty chill most of the time. Yeah. Except when he's Ripper, but that's, again, a different episode. Yes. Uh, all right. Uh, anything else? Is there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about we haven't covered? Uh, the only real parting thought I have, um, I have two about the Zeppo. And one is that I think overall, one of its big triumphs is that it's a show, it's an episode of a show where it really reminds you as a viewer that you can be a hero in your everyday life, not necessarily in the big picture way, where you're going to save a people from a burning building or something like that. But you can find ways to be a hero in your own life. And you don't need superpowers to do it. 
And that, to me, is the greatest value of Xander Harris as a character. He isn't special. There is nothing special about him on the surface. He doesn't have superpowers. He's kind of funny, kind of smart, but he could be any of us. So finding that power, to me, is what a good geeky show does best, because Buffy's audience, you know, if you're geeky, if you're a nerd, if you're disenfranchised, finding that is one of the most empowering moments a series can offer you. And that, to me, is really why the Zeppo has resonated with so many different people and is so often lauded as um, one of the best Buffy episodes. And also, I know we've talked a lot about Xander, and we've given him a lot of crap, but at the end of the day, he's still a lot of fun to watch. He's not perfect, but on the scale of Buffy problematic characters, um, he's in the middle most of the time. Yeah. Um, so when you can love him for his jokes, if you can't, I understand. And if you need to talk about it, you can tweet me at, at not Jen Walsh, one N. Awesome. Just a little plug. Awesome. That was very well done. Very well done. Thank you. Um, I, it's, okay. There's, there's, I was going to let this go. There's one last thing I want to cover and I'm, I'm, I'm terrified that this is going to undo that, that wonderful uh, finale, that button that you just put on the episode right there. But because both episodes kind of feature a character um, having some kind of epiphany or coming to some sort of fork in the road uh, mm -hmm. in Xander's case, it's that uh, he, you know, finds his own inner confidence and, uh, he can walk away from uh, equipping uh, Cordelia without feeling the the sting of her words. Um, in the, uh, the previous one, in Helpless, we get this is the one that I struggle with more is is Buffy's epiphany in that particular episode because this the sort of epiphany she has there. I mean, like we said, the real epiphany of the episode is that Giles is the surrogate father. Shouldn't mm -hmm. be an epiphany. We've all known that, but this is the episode that fully spells that out. But sort of the the high school, the after school special epiphany that comes out of it is Buffy say, like she even has the line where she says, "I can't be just a person. I can't be helpless like that." This is her after so many, after two and a half seasons of her struggling with being the chosen one, and she just wants to live a normal life. Uh, she just wants to be a person. She doesn't want to be the Slayer. This is the episode where she's like, "I can't be just a person." And uh, this is the episode where, or I should say an episode, but it's meant to be, it's meant to play like the episode where Buffy finally chooses. She makes the choice. There is a, there's a, an active slayer in town who could take over her role. Um, so she is choosing to continue being the slayer. Um, uh, and it, Anyways, so the reason I struggle with this is if some of the some of the gravitas is bled out of that for me just the, the tiniest bit by knowing that that epiphany fades really quickly. She we're mid season three and practically to the very end of the series, all the way through season seven, the character of Buffy Summers struggles with the notion of being the chosen one and how she has to be the slayer. No one else will do this. Uh, she never wanted any of this power. She would give this power up in a heartbeat, whatever. So I, I just, I kind of want to put that out there and, and 
maybe get my listeners response as painful as it may be for me to hear it and, and see what you think about that. Like how does, how does that uplifting moment at the end of helpless where Buffy finally chooses to be the slayer? How does that feel knowing that, you know, in a couple of episodes, she's going to be right back to hating the fact that she's the chosen one and wishing she could walk away from it all. I don't know if it, for me at this point in the show undermines the power of the moment because one thing I do think in Buffy's defense is important to note is as the show goes on, she's going to have things happen in her personal life and to her that are impossible to imagine on a human and supernatural level. Yes. And when someone goes through those things, it is going to make them cynical and jaded and (laughs) harder towards the outside world it's harder to open up and want to defend a place that has shown you so much cruelty and hatred and violence so i do see why it becomes more and more of a struggle at this point she's seen a lot but there the worst is truly yet to come so i don't know that it undermines that moment for me it is a fast change but again it in sunnydale things change really on the dime and the hellmouth it doesn't sleep So, yeah, it's frustrating that her resolve and her Superman moment at the end where she's going to take this on no matter what and she's going to save the day, um, though, again, tonally, maybe a little less Superman, a little more serious, a little more Batman, actually. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's something that really um, has no value or is worthless in the grand context of the show because, yes, she's a teenager. She also feels things very intensely. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, she probably means everything she's saying. And yeah, a couple weeks later, she changes her mind. But a couple weeks later, a giant snake-like monster is going to shoot out of her high school. And if that happened to me, I know I would want to peace out too. Beautifully said. That's uh, perfect. To take... To take the piss out of my own argument, I would say that earlier in this episode, I talked about how characters shouldn't have a nice, neat bow put on them. Like their stories (laughs) don't come to a nice, convenient conclusion. And here I am expecting Buffy to reach an epiphany and stick to it for the next four seasons. And that's completely unfair and unrealistic and counter to what I just said I love about this show. So I should just shut the heck up. Well, please don't, because there are many episodes you need to cover in this podcast. Oh, man, I thought I was getting out of it. I thought this was going to be the end. All right. I'll keep talking. Um, Well, Jen, thank you. This was fantastic. Um, I'm sorry it's taken so long to get you on the show, and I cannot remember. I'm not looking at the schedule in front of me right now. I can't remember if you signed on for anything uh, in the future, but you were absolutely invited back whenever you want. Um, if there's anything in particular that you want to discuss, I've, I've started playing fast and loose with, uh, the schedule that I had already laid out because a lot Mm -hmm. of people are having to drop out and other people want in. So basically if there's anything you want to talk about, let me know. And I'll, and I'll look at the schedule and see what we can do. So. All right. Well, Paul, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute blast and I would love to come back sometime. Keep me in the loop. You've got my email listeners. If you hear this part, you don't. But, oh, well, that's podcast for you. Do you want them to have your – I'll tell you what. I would prefer not. Okay, all right. No email, but how can the listeners at home find you online if you wish to be found? So if you want to find me online, the best place for us to go yell about pop culture together is Twitter. That's what it's made for. And you can find me at not Jen Walsh, 
So that's the word not, no K at the front, Jen, J-E-N, Walsh, W-A-L-S-H. Excellent. Um, yeah, so uh, you were tremendous. Thank you so much. And thank you all at home for listening. Um, you can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are other Buffy podcasts. Shocking, I know. I'm clutching my pearls. Uh, <laughs> but uh, any kind words that you could spare would really help us stand out from that prolific crowd. So um, if you have any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd just like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at cons with dead or reach out to us on the Facebook group. Wait for it. Conversations with conversations with dead people. Um, Whoa. I know, right? <laughs> it's my new favorite word. Uh, next, if everything works out again, you scholarly weedney types are so hard to pin down, but if everything works out, as expected. Uh, I will be joined once again by James South, uh, editor of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy and the recently released Westworld and Philosophy. Uh, we will be discussing episodes 314, Bad Girls, and 315, Consequences. So, until then, ger-arg, everybody. Ger-arg. I believe the light that shines on you will shine on you I can't guarantee there's nothing scary hiding under your bed I'm gonna stand guard like a postcard of a golden retriever And never leave till I leave you with a sweet dream in your Gonna watch you grow Gonna paint a sign So you'll always know As long as one and one is two There could never be a father Loved his daughter more